Good morning. Have we met? If we haven't met, I'm Tom. Good to meet you. Did you get any emails from me this week? How many of you got an email from me this week? Okay. If you've brought gift cards for me. Uh, we don't know what happened, but our, our email was hacked this week severely. And a number of you got word from allegedly me. But now we're all getting better at reading the header at the top of the, the sender. And where's that coming from? It'll only come from a calvarybible.com domain. Um, so we don't really know what happened. But virtually everybody in our system got an email asking for you to run an errand for me or to buy some gift cards, I will never ask you to buy gift cards for me, okay? Uh, cash only. There you go. That'd be good. Cash only. Uh, that's a crazy world. It's a deceptive world. There are deceivers. So how good is it that we're in this series, This We Believe? It's like we really need to have the truth. And uh, today we're going to enter into a new section and spend a couple weeks talking about the church and it's important. But it's important to me that we sort of think about why, what we've done this summer. This I believe. Where have we been? We began with the Word of God is an authoritative word from God to us of that which otherwise would not be known about God's person, His purpose, His will, His work for us. It is the authority of our life. We believe in the Word of God. Everybody said? Okay, pretty good. But it's true, right? That's how it begins. We trust in what God has said. And then we looked at our Father who is in heaven. Holy is your name. You are infinite in every way, perfect in every perfection. There is not another being beyond which could be conceived. That God is the greatest being that could be conceived. And he is our Father in heaven. And he has uh, two other people in the Trinitarian relationship. The Son, the second person, Jesus Christ, who eternally existed with his Father, but entered our world incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life without sin, went to the cross, atoned for our sins, was crucified, buried, rose again, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, it's better that I go away, which is a hard concept for the disciples to, to appreciate. We said, there's no... There's nothing better than for Jesus to be with us. And he said, no, there is something better. What's better is for me to ascend to the right hand of my Father and sit at his right hand as your high priest and advocate and send to you a helper who was with you but shall be in you. And I'm going to send that comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to come to live inside the heart of every follower of Jesus Christ. And if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you this very moment. And that is better, Jesus said, than for me just to be with you. It's hard for us to conceive, but if we would appreciate the fact that the Holy Spirit actually lives inside our life, and if we will yield to him and be guided by him, we will live the abundant life that Jesus imp 
applied. And then we talked about the human condition. We said we're all created in the image of God. And that means that every human being is worth dignity and value and it matters what we do with who humans are. But sin entered into the world and that image was defaced, if you will. It was marred. And only through Christ is the image of God in humans being restored as we are conformed to the image of His Son. That's where we've been. Are there any questions? That, that's a really important sequence. And if you're a young person here and you're thinking about how do I build my vision of life, what holds the world together, this is the foundational building block. God has spoken. God is real. He sent His Son. The Spirit of God lives in the heart of every human being who trusts in Jesus. The human being is, a, is an important creation in the image of God. And we're restored into the likeness of Jesus by faith in Him. And together we comprise the church. None of us were meant to live the Christian life in isolation, but we are together a collection of people who formed the church. And so we're going to look at the next statement. And uh, the statement will guide us for a few weeks. We won't look at all of it today, but some important parts of it about what is the church. Are you excited to hear about that? Maybe we should begin this way. A lot of people have an idea that church is, um, is a social club or a therapy group or is a purveyor of religious goods and services. And we don't think about church that way. We don't think about church as being the outlet by which you can come and get what religious goods and services you'd like for this week and you come and you consume them, and then you go away. That's not the vision of church that we have in our minds when we think about Calvary Bible Church. We actually say we are building a Christ-centered community here in Thornton and in Boulder and Erie, communities of people who are fully devoted to loving God and loving others. But it's centered on Christ. And we think there is an idea in the Bible that God loves His church. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so we can't be indifferent to what the church is and where it's going. So here's what the statement says. You want to read it with me? Yeah, I don't want to do all the talking, so let's read it out loud together. Deep breath. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which He is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches, whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, that's a good statement about the church. Uh, it doesn't say everything there is to know about the church, as each of these statements doesn't say everything there is to know, but it will help us launch off today. And I want to look particularly at the first two sentences for the majority of our time this morning. We believe that the true church 
comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone, and they are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The Bible uses several metaphors to talk about the local church. Probably the most dominant one is a body. We'll talk about that. What are some other metaphors for the church in the Bible? A bride. Someone else? My hearing's going. So, a bride, a building, a flock. Um, any other, Zach? Uh, yeah, a, a priesthood of believers, but sometimes a family, often a flock, and frequently a building. And that's because Jesus said a few things about the church. Here's the first verse I'd like you to look at. I'll put it on the screen. It comes from Matthew 16. It says 18, but it's actually 16. My bad. It's a typo. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. You might remember this text if we began reading earlier than this. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And this will be the question every one of us in the room will have to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for faith and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. I tell you, verse 18, here it is on the screen, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the first time that Jesus uses the word church. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, that's a play on words, on stone and rock, small rock, big rock, and the rock, I think in the context, is this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is who he says he is, and it's on that confession that Jesus is going to build my church. There's a couple of things I would circle in my Bible if I were you, I would, I would just sort of note, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will. This is Jesus speaking in time with his disciples, saying that the church is not here yet, but it's coming. And I think the church is a new enterprise of God, distinct from his work in all of the nation Israel and in the silent years and Jesus is coming and I'm going to build my church. It's going to be a new work that's going to begin. For those of you who want to know where it begins, I think it's Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and that is when it is the beginning of the church. But Jesus is saying, I will build my church. I will, I will build it. And that means it's going to grow. It's going to be a developing enterprise. And I'm going to be committed to building my church. Now, if you want to know what the Greek word for church is, it's two Greek words. Ek, kaleo, if you will. It's ekklesia. It means to call. And ek means out. 
so that the church is a called out group of people. Another way to say it is it's an assembly of people assembled distinctly from the rest. And the word assembly, the word ecclesia is used in a number of cases, but when Jesus uses it, it's my ecclesia. It's my group that I have called out to myself. So our, our idea of church should not be what we want it to be. Do you, can you imagine that sometimes people tell me what they want church to be like? And they tell me what they don't like about church. Can you imagine that that might occur? Um, everybody has an idea of COVID was uh, sort of steroids for this. People assessing the church, what they want it to be like, and then telling, you know, whomever would listen what, what they would like. I, I think we all have an idea of what we wish church would be like. But what ought to motivate us most because of this verse is what does Jesus want for his church? Would you agree? I will build my church. The group I'm calling out, I'm going to build that church. And here's a powerful thing about it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell that hold captive people who are in shackles to sin and they are not yet a part of the community. I, I have this picture that the church is an offensive power that goes against the powers of darkness and breaks down barriers and rescues people from the gates of hell to be a part. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church moving forward to rescue people from near condemnation. All of us who know Jesus have been rescued, right? Wouldn't you agree? We've been rescued, and that's what Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. This is one of the first statements that he makes about the church, and it's about him because it's on the confession that he is the Christ. It's his church. He will build it. Let me show you another verse that speaks about Jesus' relationship to the church. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. How many of you are going electronic on your Bible this morning? Okay, that's cool. Still has Ephesians in it, right? Okay, good. So let's go to Ephesians if you have your paper Bible, it's back to the right in your Bible. Ephesians and chapter 5. Now this is a section, while we're in this, about marriage and the role of husbands and wives. Another countercultural idea. And that's okay. The Bible is designed to give God's vision for family and marriage. And it will be a directly distinct and in some cases an opposing view for the world idea about marriage. Are you okay with that? Remember week one, the Bible's our authority. The Bible is the word of God. So here's a vision for what a husband does and what a wife does. That's not what I'm going to preach on right now. I'm just saying that the whole idea of marriage has its foundation in Jesus' relationship to the church. And it is the church and Christ that forms the foundation for how a woman, a wife, lives with her husband. A wife lives with her husband in the way that resembles what Jesus and his relationship to the church are like. 
I almost want to preach a sermon on marriage, but I'm going to really resist that. Is that okay? But you look at it and realize that marriage has as its model Jesus and the church. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, and the husband is given a model, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What do we learn about Jesus in his opinion of the church? He loves the church, and he sacrificed everything he needed to to create the church, which was his own life. Okay, can I tell you, um, if someone came to me and said, Tom, I really like you. You're a good pastor. I, I really love you. I can't stand your wife, Lucy. How do you think we would do together there? But I've heard people say, oh, I love, I love Jesus. I just can't stand his church. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Okay, well, Jesus loves his church. And we are a collection of flawed people. And there are times that we don't look like Jesus in all the ways that we ought to. But when I read this verse, I get a picture of Jesus saying, I love my church. And he gave himself up for the church. The verses that follow actually say what... Jesus does, a lot of people misunderstand now and start applying verse 26 and 27 to the husband and his wife. This is actually an illustration of what Jesus does to his church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that, verse 26, he might sanctify her, that is the church, not the wife, having cleansed her, that's the church, by the washing of water and the word, leading her to be born again, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church would be holy and without blemish. A lot of people confuse the analogy. This is the illustration that Jesus does this to his church, that the church would be without spot or blemish, that we would be saved, that we would be sanctified, that we, the church, would be set apart. And the idea is that Jesus sacrificed his very life that the church would be his called out group of people who are so transformed by being saved, being sanctified, being cleansed, being renewed, that we would be what we could not otherwise be apart from Jesus' saving grace. The church is what Jesus loves and what he's trying to do is lead his community of people to be sanctified, set apart, holy, and without blemish. Are there any questions about that? The illustration is he loves us so much that he's, he's given himself that this would be what the church is like. Set apart, holy, unto him. Now the comparison, before we leave it, is that husbands should love their wives in a sacrificial way, be willing to lay down their life and give up everything so that their wife would flourish and become what she could not otherwise become apart from his sacrificial love for her. There is a flourishing of the church that results because Jesus loved us and gave his life. That's the model. The comparison to husbands, just because we're in it, is husbands 
Your aim is to love your wife in such a way that she flourishes and becomes what she couldn't be without your sacrificial love. It's a beautiful picture. Marriage is rarely, you know, consistently carry this out, but that's the aim. Jesus is carrying that out in relation to the church. He's making the church his own body because he loves it. It's a beautiful purpose statement of what Jesus is trying to do to the church. We can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. We need to say, I love the church because Jesus loves the church. Now, the apostles, when they began to teach in the New Testament, had a view of the church, and I'm going to give you a couple verses on that. But the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter um, 20 in verse 8, in talking to um, some of the other leaders of the early church, said to them, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the, here's another metaphor, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of everybody. Okay, it's the church of God. Whose church is it? It's God's. It's the church of God. And then it says again, which he obtained with his own blood. I simply give you that so that you see when the apostles started talking about the church, they said the church is God's. And it came into being because Jesus purchased it with his own blood. It's a view of the church that is really significant. Okay, so it's his church. It came into being because of his death and sacrifice. And the apostles said, it belongs to God who belongs to the church. If we could go back, Brenton, to the statement. It says, we believe the true church comprises all who have been justified. So there's two ways to think about church. And we sometimes say capital C, small c, Calvary Bible Church, in Thornton is capital C or small c? Small. We're small. And big C church is like everyone who has trusted in Christ, whom Jesus has said, you're part of my family. You're part of my flock. You're part of the church. You, you belong to me, the true church. Well, how do you enter into the true church? You don't enter into the true, true church by joining this church, do you? You enter into the true church of God by being a Christian, in the language of the statement, by being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Romans chapter 5 would be a great place to go look at that, but Romans chapter 5, 1, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification is when God declares us forgiven. We call on the name of the Lord and we're saved and you're forgiven by His grace and the biblical language is you're declared righteous, justified. So the moment you trust in Christ, it's as if I have peace with God and you become a part of this church that belongs to Him. Now it says those who belong to the true church. There's a lot of analogies in the Bible. Jesus used a couple of them between sheep and goats and wheats and tares. And sometimes, you know, people are a part of the church, but they may not really be genuinely converted. Or they, they're around the church, but don't really belong to Him. 
Only God knows who's a part of the capital C church. We look at trees and say, what's the fruit of that life? But God knows who's a part of his family. How do you become a part of the family of God? The flock of God. The church of God. How do you become a part of that? Anybody? By faith alone, in Christ alone, not of works. A man is justified not by the works of the law, but by faith alone, in Christ alone. So, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be, yeah, be saved. And that's how I become a part of the church. We, w- we want to emphasize that because we, we like membership at Calvary. It helps us to know who's a part of our church family. But being a part of this family won't be the thing that leads you into God's family. The only thing that leads you into God's family is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And then when you have, we would say that it would be a really good thing to be united with a local church, a small C church, one like this. We're going to talk about that. All right. I think you're with me on this. All right, let's think about the body for a moment together. When you become a Christian, what is the spiritual reality that happens to you that places you into the body of Christ? If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One of the ways the Apostle Paul speaks about being a part of the body of Christ, is that we're all very different. We all have different roles. We all have different gifts and abilities. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, not on the screen, says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. What does that mean? How is it with Christ? Well, your body has many members, but it's one body. You have an elbow, you have an ankle, you have ears, eyes, you have a heart, you have all the internal pieces of your body, but you only have one body. That's the way it is in the body of Christ. Verse 13 then says, For in one spirit we all were baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. This is Paul's description of when you become a Christian, you actually are baptized by the Holy Spirit of God into the body of Christ. I I hesitate using this church language and theological language, but if, if you understand when you called upon the name of the Lord, something happened spiritually to you where God, by His Holy Spirit... In a spiritual way, in an immaterial or un, not visual way, but took your soul and baptized you in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the indwelling of God in you when you called upon the name of the Lord. If you have that, that's how you get into the body. That's, you are baptized into the body of Christ. His point is, we're all very different, but we all come to Christ in the same way. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, the Spirit of God places us into His church. Now he goes on to describe our differences. And he says, well, but we all have a different part to play in the body of Christ. And we all need each other. And he makes a beautiful analogy. like the foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Can it? No. And the hand can't say to the ear, I can't need you. 
And we all don't want to be the ear. Can you imagine one ear just moving down the road, an ear? We, we don't want to be that. We need to be diverse. You can't just see a big eyeball. We all want to be the eyeball. That wouldn't work. Can you imagine a big mouth? Yeah, I can imagine that going down the street. No, we're all, we're all interconnected and related to each other. In some part, God fits us together through the baptizing, baptizing work of the Holy Spirit into one body. Ephesians chapter 123 uses the word body again. That God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and Father of glory, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. It's the analogy, a body, Christ the head, every part. Ephesians chapter 4, let's turn there together. This will be the last text we look at. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. What does God do to create the body and all the parts of it? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, and God gave, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up, and there it is again, of the body of Christ. This is what is given Christ's gift to give these offices to the church. Here they are, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. When we think about the church, God gives certain offices to the church so the church will be built up, and then all of the church will be involved in the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. For what purpose? Verse 13 and 14, you can see it. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're aiming that Calvary Bible Church would be a spiritually mature church so that we would know the things about what it means to be like Christ, to see the fullness of Christ in our life, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful scheming. That is that there is a lot of deception in the world today around the church, and Jesus is interested in giving pastors, teachers, evangelists, to the church so that the church can be built up so that we will be spiritually mature so that we will not be susceptible to human deception. Can we get practical for a minute? In what ways is the church being deceived by human deception today that we should be on guard about? If it's his church, it's about him. Not about celebrities. Not about the show. Not about prosperity. Not even first and foremost about us. I love that the church is the place where the family of God can be built up 
to minister to each other so that we grow spiritually. And we all need to grow spiritually. And the church, in a sense, can be a hospital where people who are sick and hurting can come. We want that. But if the church turns in on itself in human cunning and deceitful scheming, that suddenly the church becomes all about us and less about Jesus, we're missing his idea of the church that he loves and he gave himself up for. You with me on that? So we just have to be vigilant. We come to church. I want to be nourished when I come to church. But I want to be nourished so that I will know what my part in the body of Christ is and that I will exercise it to the glory of Jesus who is the head of the church. And I'll just take a minute and say, I'm not the head of Calvary Bible Church. And you should say, <laughs> amen. Okay, Jesus is the head of our church. And, and we have to always sort of deflect to him and say, what does he say about what the church should be like? Well, the church should be Christ-honoring. It should be about this, loving God and loving others. It should be about this, making disciples, helping people find their place of service and multiplication in the world. It's his church for his glory. Okay, two more verses, 15 and 16. Rather, this is what we really should do. Speak the truth in love to each other. We're guided by the truth. We're to grow up in every way unto him who is the, there it is, he's the head, who is Christ. He's the head of the church. From whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in. I want to be a loving community, fully devoted to loving God and loving others. And I'm so thankful that when I think about our church, and when I say our church, I mean Calvary in three locations. For those of you who are new and you've been here for a year or two years or three years around Thornton, God has had blessing on Calvary Bible Church. And we've never had a split. We've never had a, a fight that t tore us down. Uh, and we want to build up the church in love. It's His, it's his church. All right, there's so much we could say. We're going to say it over the rest of the weeks. Zach is going to straighten out anything that I've misled you on over the next several weeks. But uh, I hope that you'll go away thinking this. God gave us the Bible. God is the Father. Christ is our Savior. The Spirit lives in me. I'm a human being created in His image and for His glory. And I'm a part of a community of people who love God and love others. You cannot live the Christian life without the church. What is your part? You're going to hear about that in the weeks ahead. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, I thank you that you loved the church and gave the church to, for us to be a part of. And I pray that the way you think about the church will be the way we think about the church. I pray for anyone who's here today and um, needs a place of community where they can be nourished and built up. I, I pray that the days ahead would have next steps for them to step into um, learning more about this church, learning how to serve in this church, being in community here, 
And mostly, Lord, we pray that we will follow you, the head, and and we will listen to your word and be guided by your truth. And we pray that out of Calvary Bible Church, you will reach people and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the work of the church to rescue people. So God, would you just build up your church for your glory and give us a vision for what our part in that is. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.